you are so faithful, Jesus, to meet us when we are weak, when we are in need, which is most of the time, and actually all the time if we could see things more clearly. And you know my weakness and my need, Lord. I need you to come and to help me. And thank you that I know you will. And we all need you to come and subdue, you know, remaining rebellion in our hearts, subdue unbelief, subdue just past experiences that would make us filter out things you might want to be saying to us today. Let your word be unleashed in our hearts to heal and to encourage and to strengthen and to satisfy and to guide and to convict and to build us up, Lord, in our faith. And so we give this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing Jan wanted me to be sure I said this morning, I, I said, so what should I make sure I, talk, I say this morning? She says, well, make sure you remind people that there's times where we need to be reminded of stuff we've already heard, which is how this morning may sound to you, because we spent eight or nine weeks talking about Jesus' mission last, you know, like late 2007 and early 2008. So she said, it's just so important that we be reminded of stuff because we forget. So for some of you, this will be a reminder. I would think to, for all of us, though, there's new things God wants to say. And let's dig into talking about Jesus' mission. I want to start with a story of what happens to a man named John Harper. Because I'm praying that God will impart to our hearts some of what he put into John Harper's heart. There he is, okay, with his wife and daughter. John Harper was born in Scotland's late 1800s. Uh, when he was 14 years old, God brought his saving power upon him, changed his heart. He was profoundly born again, trusted Jesus, repented of his sins, immediately started telling people about Jesus all through his little town there in Scotland. Fast forward, he got married to this woman here, and then they had their daughter, Nana. Okay? Um, but just a year or so after this picture was taken, his wife tragically passed away. Uh, But he continued to tell people about Jesus. This was his passion. This was his burning passion in life. And he became very well known as an evangelist and was invited to come over to America to tell people about Jesus. And so he decided with his daughter, Nana, who was eight years old at the time, and an older cousin to travel to America for this evangelistic trip. And so they got on the Titanic to come to America. Um, The daughter tells a story about what happened that night. She says that she was woken up by her dad, and he said, you know, uh, we've hit an iceberg, and the ship's going to sink, but there's going to be a boat coming to rescue all of us, but I want you and your cousin to get on a lifeboat uh, first. Dad will be fine. Boat's coming for me. You get on the lifeboat, and you'll be taken care of. And so the dad put the daughter and the cousin on the lifeboat, and they survived, and John Harper did not. But we know what happened to John Harper because... Two months after the Titanic sank, two months after John Harper died, uh, a young Scotsman was at a prayer meeting in Canada. And he stood up and told a story with tears about how he got saved that night that the Titanic sank. He was on the Titanic also. When the Titanic went down, this young Scotsman, now I'm not talking about John now, this is somebody else, this young Scotsman ended up floating on a piece of wood in the freezing waters. And he said that, you know, the currents, the waves, there was wind, and this, this man was being brought over to him by the waves and the currents. And as soon as the man got within shouting distance, this was John Harper, he shouted out to him, Man, are you been saved from your sins? 
And the Scotsman said, no. And John Harper shouted out to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then wind waves moved him away. And then a little while later, winds and waves brought this man back within shouting distance. And he shouted out, man, are you saved from your sins now? And this young Scotsman said, no. And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved from your sins. And the wind and the waves blew him away. And as the young Scotsman watched John Harper being blown away, he saw him lose his grip on the piece of wood because he was so weakened and he slipped into the, into the water, sank and drowned. And here's what this young Scotsman said in this prayer meeting. He said, there alone in the night with two miles of water under me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. John Harper knew Jesus Christ. He trusted Jesus. He saw eternity. He saw heaven and hell and the cross and sin so clearly that when he was dying, which he knew his prospects were bleak, he saw what was important. This man being saved from his sins. And I'm praying that this morning God will impart to us some of that clarity It is so easy, isn't it, for our vision to get clouded. So we start to think, you know, what's important is everything else. And we lose sight of the fact that what is of blazing, infinitely most importance is eternity, heaven, hell, the cross, sinners, salvation, Jesus. And so I'm praying that God's going to impart some of this to us today. So let's dig into our material here. I want to start off talking about Jesus' mission. What is Jesus' mission? Jesus is on a mission. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And all of world history is about Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission is infinitely more important than the presidential elections that are coming up. Infinitely more important than the Summer Olympics in Beijing. Infinitely more important than the price of gas. What's vastly more important than anything else is Jesus' mission. Because what world history is all about is Jesus' mission that he will accomplish. And so... What is his mission? Let me give you five points. We've covered these all before uh, in previous messages here in the series, so I'm going to be relatively brief. But number one, it all starts with the fact that in astonishing goodness and love and mercy, God created a universe and a world and you so that you could have the heart-filling joy of beholding, seeing God. God is so great, He's so glorious, that the most loving thing God could do would be to share His greatness and His glory with you. And so, that's why you're here. That's why everybody on the world is here. And we've, we're all wired so that our highest joys come from beholding greatness. And the greatest greatness that we could possibly behold is God. And so to see God in His majesty... And his love, and his wisdom, and his glory, and his power, and his sovereignty, and his goodness. When you behold God, your heart is most fully satisfied. And that's why he created you. You get a taste of that in Psalm 1611. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not that God's right hand gives us something else besides Him, but what is at God's right hand is God. Beholding God. Seeing Him. We're wired 
to gain our highest joys from seeing greatness. That's why people go to the Grand Canyon. That's why I took my son to a Giants game last Monday night. That's why, as opposed to some like little neighborhood little league game, because we like to see greatness. I like to see great baseball players. Six runs in the first inning, man. It was greatness, okay? Number two, tragically, every human being has knowingly and willfully refused to respond to God. We've all rebelled against God. Romans 1, 21 and 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. I've done that. You've done that. Your neighbor has done that. Your boss has done that. And number three, tragically, as a result, every human being justly deserves the righteous wrath of God forever. John Harper understood this which is why he understood that the most important thing he could do in his last hours and minutes was to help some sinner who was facing eternal punishment, help some sinner be saved. And we need to be clear about this. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that's been all of us. And it's everybody on the globe. We've all willfully, knowingly turned away from God and rebelled against his purpose. And because God is infinitely glorious, to rebel against him is to profane infinite glory. And the punishment must deserve the crime. Profaning infinite glory requires infinite punishment, which is why hell is forever as horrifying and as mind-blowing as that is to consider infinite crime calls for injustice infinite punishment which is why God is absolutely just absolutely just to bring his wrath upon men and women who've rebelled against him knowingly and have that wrath be everlasting punishment so if God stopped everything right there no angel would protest. None of us could protest. He would be just, righteous, holy. But God, as Ephesians 2.5 says, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, what did he do? He chose to save a vast number of people that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe through Jesus' death on the cross. So I want to show you two verses in Revelation, I've been trying to memorize both of these. I would encourage you to do it. Revelation 5, 9, John gets a, a glimpse of what's happening in heaven. They sang a new song. This is angels. Worthy are you to take the scroll. They're, they're singing this to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, which is the scroll of the unfolding of world history. Why? For you were slain. On the cross, Jesus was slain on the cross, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus, 2,000 years ago, came to the earth, 
And he ransomed, he paid the penalty for people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And so Jesus was willing to have the Father punish him for my sins. The Father was willing to punish his own Son, pour wrath that I deserve to have poured out upon me, and instead divert it and pour it out upon his Son. Isaiah 53 says that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death. Why would God the Father crush Jesus when I was the one who deserved the crushing? The only answer is God has demonstrated his love for us. He has demonstrated his love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. None of us has even even started to scratch the surface of how much God loves for us and how that's displayed in his punishing his own son in our place for our sin. Revelation 5.9 So Jesus ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation And then the end of the picture, Revelation 7, 9, this ransoming is effective. After this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, this great multitude that no one can count, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Okay, you're going to be there if you're trusting Jesus Christ. So this is you. John might have even seen you, okay, as he was looking at this group of people. Standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, fully righteous, with palm branches in their hands, which is a way of saying, I acclaim greatness, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So here's this fast forward to the end of history. Here's this vast number that no one can count, from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, God the Father, standing before the Lamb, and they're, they're crying out with a loud voice, just you can hear just reverberating, salvation. We attribute our entire salvation to God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And so the death that Jesus died in Revelation 5-9 sees its fulfillment in Revelation 7-9 with this great multitude that no one can count of saved people. And so that's Jesus' mission. Number five is to save lost people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Two scriptures. Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then here's how Paul puts it. 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So that's Jesus' mission. What all of world's history is about is Jesus saving sinners. That's why creation took place. That's why we're here. That's the whole purpose of world's history is Jesus fulfilling his mission of saving lost men and women. So that's Jesus' mission. That's what he's up to. Now, how does he pursue his mission? Matthew 28:18. Jesus came and said to them, He's talking to the apostles, the disciples here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, one question we've got to figure out from this passage is, 
This is a command that Jesus is giving to the apostles. Does this apply just to the apostles, or did Jesus intend for this command to be applied to the entire church? That's the question. And there's two reasons why I think this command is to be applied to all of us. This is a command he's giving to us. One reason is, all through the New Testament, you see believers fulfilling this great commission. The New Testament doesn't know anything about people who follow Jesus who aren't fulfilling the Great Commission. Every one of us are. That's one reason. Second reason from this passage is notice he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The apostles lived about another 40 or 50 years and they died. The end of the age is still to come. Why would Jesus give us a reason for this that it will be the end of the age if it doesn't apply to all the believers who exist to the end of the age? Because we're here now and Jesus is still with us fulfilling this command in us and helping us to do this command. So I think the Great Commission is clearly a command that Jesus gives to the apostles and to all of his people. So what this means is Jesus has got a mission to save lost people. And how does he do it? He does it through you and through me. And so Jesus Christ, it's like he's looking you right in the eye This is his last words in Gospels, Matthew, in in Matthew's Gospel. And it's like he's looking at every one of his disciples right in the eye and he's saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all the nations. He's looking you right in the eye and he's saying, Go, make disciples of all the nations. It's, It's through us that Jesus pursues his mission. This is both glorious and it's sobering. Right? I mean, it's glorious because what higher purpose could there be for your life than being involved in Jesus' mission to save lost men and women from eternal punishments? It doesn't get any more significant than that, does it? If you have felt like, you know, my life lacks meaning, it lacks purpose, well, it might, apart from this, But this is meaningful, and this is purposeful. This is massive of importance. And it's also sobering, because Jesus has called us to be the means by which lost men and women are saved for eternity. That is sobering. He gives two encouragements to help us. Number three, first one, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Now, one way this impacts me is, imagine that that your boss said, I want you to do something different tomorrow. I want you to go take care of this, you know, something out of the ordinary. Go go do something over here. So you're on your way to go over and do what your boss said. But but another another underling, like, you know, same level of authority as you, says, you shouldn't be doing that. That's different. Now, are you going to go with what the other underling says? Or are you going to go with what your boss says? Okay, if you're smart... Okay, you'll go with what your boss says, because he's the one with authority. So if Jesus Christ, who has all authority, has looked you in the eye and he said, go and make disciples of all the nations, you have authorization to do exactly that. No one should be able to cause you to divert from that purpose. Because the one with all authority has authorized you. You have authorization. You look up and you say, am I doing the right thing? He says, yes. You say, okay. Somebody box. Why are you doing that? Uh, because he told me to. The one who has all authority has called me to do this. And so we shouldn't let anyone else cause us to divert 
from this mission, nor should we, in our own authority, cause us to diverge from this mission. Jesus has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, here's an illustration that I like to use. Reminder, okay, some of you have heard this before. It's like you're a member of a search and rescue team, okay? Search and rescue team, you get a call, 1130 at night. There's four people up in the mountains, lost. Go find them. Okay, so if you're a member of the search and rescue team, you get that call from your boss. You're going to you know, put on your boots and get on your 4 by 4 and you're going to head up into the mountains and try to find them. That's exactly what Jesus has said to us here. He has said, there are lost people in your neighborhood and in San Jose. I have sent you to your neighborhood and to San Jose to find them. There's lost people in San Jose. You are sent to find them. So that means we should be thinking, like this next week, what are some steps we could take to go find them? What are some steps we could be taking to help somebody in my neighborhood come to know Jesus Christ? Because Jesus has called you to find lost people in San Jose. Do you feel that? Do you feel the weightiness of that? You are called by Jesus Christ to find lost people in San Jose. Oh, just let this hit you. That's one encouragement. All authority has been given to Jesus. The second one is, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I love that. Last Monday, I had coffee with a, 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 a small business owner who just has a business about a mile or two from here. And as I was driving, I wasn't sure what I was going to say. This gentleman does not know the Lord. We've gotten to know each other. Um, he's had some medical difficulties. I've, been, I've prayed for him at his business. It's been good. But I, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to say. But what I found solace in was this. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with me. Jesus is going to give me the words to say. He's going to guide me. He's here. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So it's a scary thing for all of us to think about venturing out to find lost people who Jesus is going to save in San Jose. What am I going to say? You know, what if, you know, what if they reject me? What if I just, you know, totally like stutter over my words? We all struggle with that. And Jesus says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Two encouragements. So Jesus' mission, which is what all of world history is about, is to seek and save the lost and he calls us to be the means by which he pursues his mission. He doesn't save people apart from us. This is what he's chosen to do. He only works through believers. He only works through people like us sharing the gospel. So what do we do? Number one. How, how can we pursue Jesus' mission? Number one. Understand that this is our purpose for being on earth. This is your purpose. This is why you're still here and not in heaven. Okay? And included in this is your family, your husband, your wife. If they don't know the Lord, helping them meet the Lord. If they do know the Lord, strengthening them in the Lord. This is obviously involves your kids, showing them Jesus, sharing with them Jesus, talking to them about the new curriculum, when the little take-home that you get today for what your kids have studied. This is fantastic new curriculum we've got. So it involves your husband, your wife, your children. But your purpose for being here is to seek and save the lost. That's why you're here. 
John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I mean, just let this just sink into your mind. You are not here in San Jose by accident. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus has sent you to San Jose. You've been sent here for this purpose. That's just exhilarating. So there's no accident. San Jose is a very expensive place to live. You know, wonderful climate, but it, you, know, you pay for it. Okay. Why am I here? This is why we're here. You're sent here because Jesus wants you to seek and save the lost. Unless he calls you to Arumchi, which we'll get to in a moment, in Central Asia. So understand that this is your purpose. So as you look ahead to your life, what do you see as your purpose? Is it money? Is it retirement? Is it seeking and saving the lost? What's your purpose? It should be seeking and saving the lost. So that's the first step to pursue Jesus' mission. Understand that this is our purpose. Number two, as Jesus commanded, go to people who don't know Jesus. We shouldn't wait for lost people to come to us. Jesus calls us to go to them. Look at again at Matthew 28:18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Okay, flip the page over. Now, why is going so important? Well, it's because lost people probably aren't going to show up here. I mean, they might. If, if, you're, if you don't know Jesus yet, if you, if you haven't come to know Jesus, we're glad you're here. We love you. We're, we appreciate you. It's kind of a scary thing, probably. Hope that this is helpful for you to learn more about Jesus. And I'll, I've been praying that somebody would come and, and meet Jesus Christ this morning. But most lost people, most people who don't know Jesus, aren't going to come here. That's why Jesus calls us to go, to go to them. And so go to your neighbors, go to your friends, go to places where you can meet people who don't know Jesus. It just struck me this morning thinking about this. If you don't know anybody who doesn't know Jesus, probably it's because you, you've stopped going, Right? I mean, because if you go, you'll meet people who don't know Jesus. If you stop going, you won't. And so there's all kinds of ways that you can go to your neighbors, to people at your workplace. Ask God to help give you ways to go. But go to your neighbors, go to your friends, go to places where you can meet people who don't know Jesus. That's one way to go. Now, there's a whole other way to go that I I want you to think about. We should also go to unreached people groups. Today, there's approximately 1,400 unreached people groups. Here's what an unreached people group is. It's a, an ethno-linguistic group of people who have no missionaries uh, speaking their own language or churches in their own culture and language, Bibles in their own language. They do not have the good news of Jesus in their own language. And so the only way that someone's going to be able, that they're going to be able to be saved is if someone crosses cultural barriers, crosses comfort barriers, crosses language barriers, crosses safety barriers, big old barriers. And most of these unreached people groups are in fairly dangerous places to live. That's why they're still unreached. Okay, and one of them, we don't have the screen, but there's a little picture right there. 
That's Urumqi, northwest China. And in Urumqi, there's millions of Uyghurs. Uyghurs are a Muslim people group who are unreached. There's a few missionaries there. We've had the privilege, I won't mention their name just so that there's not too many connections made here, but we've had the privilege of sending a couple, a family from our church to live right there in Urumqi. And in fact, a year from this summer, 2009, uh, Lord willing, there's some of us that are going to be going to visit them. But so here there's a group of Muslims called the Uyghurs who are an oppressed minority in northwest China who have no access to the gospel, although that's starting to increase, but they are an unreached people group. And the only way that people, and there's 1,400 groups like that in the world. Here's my challenge to you. I would challenge you to pray regularly and say, Jesus, I will go anywhere you want me to go. I will do anything you want me to do. I would just challenge you, pray that. Pray that. And if you're not willing to pray that, if I can just gently, lovingly as your pastor, if you're not willing to pray, Jesus, I'll go anywhere you want me to go, do anything you want me to do, you need to search your soul as to Are you receiving Jesus as your Lord? Have you received him as your Savior? With all the the treasures of what that means spiritually and forgiveness and adoption and love and a new heart and and his promises to care for you for the rest of your life. Have you received him as as your treasure? Because if you're not willing to go wherever Jesus wants you to go, is he your Lord? Now, I understand the the trembling that can come when you start to pray that prayer. I'm not saying that any of us can pray that jovially, you know, or flippantly, because it may mean going to Arumchi or staying in San Jose. But that's my challenge to you. Now, if you might say, well, you know, if if I were to do something like that, then I couldn't pursue the American dream anymore. But that's not your purpose. Right? Pursuing the American dream is not your purpose. For the couple we sent out from our church to go, I'm proud of them, I love them dearly, they shelved the American dream. But isn't that what we all should be doing? Shelving the American dream? That's not what it's about. See, If you could just be, be jolted to think that a hundred years from now, you will not wish you pursued the American dream a little bit more. I guarantee it. You will not wish you did that more. You'll wish you did it less. Promise. I promise. Based on the authority of God's word. So just be shaken up a little bit here. Some of you thought, well, I'm not even going to think about that. That's never going to happen. I'd never go do that. Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? Pray about it. Think about it. Uh, We like to say that all of us should either be goers or senders. Because, this is huge, there's 1,400 people groups who don't have access to the gospel. There's 1,400 people groups that we should weep over. We should say, I'm either going to go or I'm going to send. I'm either going to go myself or I'm going to help people go. Because this is vital that they get the gospel. And then missions prayer, the third Thursday night of the month at the Strauss's. Thank you, third Friday night of the month, Strauss's house. We pray for missionaries that we've sent out and for others as well. So, Go. Go to San Jose, to your neighbors. Number four, I'm sorry, number three, pray and ask God to save these people you meet who don't know Jesus. Pray for them. 
pray, pray, pray. Romans 10.1 Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Number four, love and care for people who don't know Jesus. Love them. Care about all their needs, especially their need to be saved from their sins and brought into relationship with God. I love this passage in Luke 19. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Love people who don't know Jesus. Ponder the fact that they face eternity in hell. And let that just break you. Let that, it should. It's truth. It should. Let it make you weep. Let it make you care. Let it make you love them. If possible, reach out to lost people with friendship and hospitality like Jesus did. Luke 15.1 Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's what Jesus did. That's what we should do. Hospitality, friendship. Then number five, lovingly, humbly, and genuinely share the gospel with them. It's not enough just to have friendship and hospitality. Share the gospel with them. No one gets saved without hearing the gospel. Look at this verse in 1 Corinthians 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through, underline that word, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What is the means through which God saves people? Through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach. It's through those words of foolishness. What, is those, what are those words about? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God saves people through the gospel. So think about it like this. You know what liquid plumber is? Okay, liquid plumber. If your pipe's got a clog, you pour liquid plumber in, and theoretically it goes to work, and it busts up the clog, and whoosh, it, all, it all works, okay? People's hearts are clogged up to the gospel, okay? Everybody's heart's clogged up to the gospel. Yours was, mine was, I didn't want the gospel, you didn't want the gospel, The gospel is like liquid plumber. You wouldn't look at a clogged up pipe and say, well, I'm not going to use the liquid plumber. The pipe's clogged up. Nor should we say, I'm not going to share the gospel. They don't seem like they're interested. I'm not going to share the gospel. They don't seem like they're open. Listen, it's through the gospel that God makes people interested, that God opens people's hearts. It's through the gospel. Just like if we skipped every clogged pipe in terms of liquid plumber, all the pipes would stay clogged. If we only share the gospel with people we think are open, there will be hearts that won't be open because it's through the gospel that hearts get open. Look at this next uh, two verses. 1 Peter 1.23 You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. How are you born again? How has your heart changed? How was your rebellious will subdued? How did faith get given and repentance get given? It was through being born again through the word. Quick story. Uh, A Jewish woman came to see me once and didn't know Jesus. And she had uh, cancer and wanted to be prayed for. And so some of us met with her to pray for her. But we, we felt like before we prayed, we should read Isaiah 53 with her. And so we opened up Isaiah 53, which is Old Testament Jewish scriptures about Jesus the Messiah. 
And so again, she, she wasn't a Christian, wasn't interested in Jesus, but we read Isaiah 53, got about halfway through, I looked up, and there were tears streaming down her face. And I said, what's happening? And she says, God's telling me who this is. This is about Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, it's the most amazing thing. The liquid plumber of God's word changed her heart. If we would have said, she's Jewish, she's not interested, we're not going to tell her about the gospel, we would have been taking from her the means God would use to save her. Share the gospel with everybody. The gospel is liquid plumber. The gospel is the means God uses to reach down with his power and subdue rebellious wills and take out hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh and give faith and give repentance through the gospel. When you speak the gospel to someone, you have no idea what might happen, but you've just like, just like dropped a, not a bomb, that's too negative, but you've, anyway, something that could be very powerful for them. Liquid plumber that could bring about change in their hearts. Did I already read James 1.18? One more verse. Of his own will, he brought us forth. It's a, it's a birth, uh, a giving birth word in the Greek. He, he gave birth to us, another analogy to being born again, by the word of truth. It's by the word that this happens. So share the gospel with people. Don't wait for people's hearts to become open. The gospel is the means by which people's hearts become open. Lovingly, non-argumentatively, humbly share the gospel. Number six, lovingly, humbly, and genuinely urge them to repent of their sin and trust Jesus as Savior, Lord, and all-satisfying treasure. You can share the gospel with somebody, but you've got you to say what, what John said out in, in the waters outside the Titanic. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Lovingly, maybe with tears, earnestly urge them, trust Jesus. Confess your sins to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Receive Jesus as Lord and as Savior and as treasure. So it uh, happened in Acts 16.30. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. So let them know what they need to do. Trust in Jesus. Then number six, don't be afraid of how people might respond. I'm afraid of how people might respond, and I'm sure that you are too. But we shouldn't be afraid. Here's why. If you're loving, humble, and genuine, then you can rejoice no matter what happens. Because you'll be rewarded, either with the joy of their salvation or with more of God's presence now and forever. It's a win-win. You cannot lose by humbly, lovingly, genuinely telling somebody about Jesus. Two scriptures. Luke 6.22. Blessed are you... When people hate you. That's a stunning statement, isn't it? Did you catch that? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. <laughs> when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Leap for joy. Why? Why? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. And the reward of heaven is more of Jesus. So you'll get more of Jesus in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And then here's how Peter puts it. 1 Peter 4, 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you now. So it's a win-win. 
Okay? You got a neighbor and you you want to share Jesus with them and you're afraid because of how they might respond and the relationship might get strange and there might start to be like an awkward silence as you talk to them in the future. I know that feeling. It's very it's very fearful, but it'll be a win-win. Lovingly, humbly, gently share Jesus with them. Remember, we had, Jan and I had a, a, a friend. He was Jewish. She was Catholic. And we invited, invited them over. I said, let's, let's have dessert with you guys. Come over to our house because I'd like you to share with me what it means for you to be Jewish. And then we can share with you what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. And so they came, and they did not respond that night, but it was a very good time. They didn't hate us or revile us either, but the spirit of glory and of God was resting upon us. It was a very rich, powerful time, so don't be afraid. Okay, so there's there's two action steps I want you to take, and I'm going to give you a couple of encouragements, and then I have one last illustration. Two action steps. One is, start to pray, Jesus, I will go anywhere you want me to go, Say anything you want me to say. Do anything you want me to do. Start praying that. I just I just challenge you. And it might be I'm afraid to pray this, Jesus, but help me. And he will. I mean he he will you might you might pray, I believe, help my unbelief. He likes that prayer too, that's good. But pray and fully surrender your future. I mean, all your dreams and all your plans, just lay it at Jesus' feet and say, I will go wherever you want me to go. There's no age that could keep you from being called to an unreached people group. Maybe there's a, a young age that may keep you, but there's no older age. Any, anybody can go and do that. And then secondly, I'd like you to, to ask, what can I do this week to be part of a search and rescue team seeking to find lost people in San Jose? What can I do this week? with a neighbor, something that fits you, fits your personality. We're all different. Some of you may be street corner preacher type people, whatever. You know, Some of you may be like much more, whatever. Just what, what can you do this week? This week, some action steps. See, in our home groups, we spend time each week, we're working on doing this anyway, praying and pondering, what can we do this week to advance Jesus' mission? And then praying for each other. And then next week, how did it go? Because... Well, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll get to that point. A huge part of our joy in Jesus is advancing the mission, which I'm going to come to in a moment. Okay. So those are just two steps. Surrender. Ask Jesus, what, what would you have me do? Where do you want me to go? Future, long term. And then what should I do this week? Now here's five encouragements. I'm sorry, four encouragements to do this. Briefly. Number one. All we've received in Jesus Christ I think the biggest thing that holds us back from being like the Scotch, Scotsman I told you about earlier, John, I think the biggest thing that holds us back is we, we have a very shallow knowledge of what we have in Jesus and a very shallow experience of what we have in Jesus. I'm talking about the Western church, in America in particular. And I would encourage you to, to go deep in the Word to see what we have in Jesus and go deep in prayer and in heart experience what we have in Jesus. Because if you are feeling blah about Jesus, you're not going to talk to anybody else about Jesus. In fact, don't. Okay? Why don't you wait and, and, and go deeper in terms of who Jesus is? And if you're feeling blah about Jesus, that is a very serious and frightful place to be. Right? Because when I'm that way, I'm blind. I'm like, there's something really screwing up my thinking. Because Jesus has done glorious things for me, and it's because I'm blind. And so I just mentioned these four. Pray over them. Go deeper into them. There's many, many others. Go deep in your knowledge of the gospel. 
and go deeper in your experience of the gospel so that you love Jesus and then you'll have a heart to share. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You've been forgiven. And if you see that and your heart rejoices in that, then you can share that. Ephesians 1.5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons, daughters, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In eternity past, he looked down upon you. If you're trusting Jesus now, this is what happened. Before you were trusting Jesus, you were a rebel. He knew you were going to be an enemy. He looked down upon you, and for no reason in you, he set his affection upon you and chose to predestine you to adoption. I'm going to adopt through Jesus, through Jesus' death on the cross. I'm going to adopt him. I'm going to adopt her. And so then Jesus died. Then fast forward. God works in your heart. You repented of your sins, put your trust in Jesus. Now you're, you're in God's family and there's an adoption that's taken place. You were an orphan. You're now adopted. God's your father. Your name is written on his hand in indelible engraving. He's always has his total attention on you. And he can have that on everybody because he's God. Nothing about your life escapes his notice or escapes his concern. He's promised to provide for you. He's promised to guide you. He's promised to strengthen you. He's promised to comfort you. He's promised to protect you. He's promised to satisfy you. He's promised to take care of everything that you need between now and eternity. Okay, that's adoption. I got a little too long in that one. Next one, John 6:35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The heart hungers and thirsts that every human being have can only be satisfied in coming to Jesus and trusting him. Do you experience that? We've received that in Jesus. And then Romans 5, 2, through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're standing in grace. We're looking forward to beholding God's glory forever. That's what we've received in Christ. That should encourage us to tell other people about Jesus. You've heard this before probably. If you win the lottery, you're going to tell people about it, right? At least your friends. Okay? You're going to have a hard time not telling them. You're going to sit down, and you're going to want to tell them pretty quick, right? Because it's the lottery. You're excited about it. When we're excited about what Jesus has done, we're going to want to talk to people about it, even though there may be cost, because it's a win-win. And number two, the desperate need people have for salvation Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Picture it like this. There's a, because humanity has rebelled against God, there's a conveyor belt with humanity on it, and it's moving towards eternal judgment. And the only way anybody gets off the conveyor belt is by Somebody's sharing the gospel. It's the only way. It's the only way. There's a way. But it's the only way. And so when we understand the desperate need people have for salvation, your neighbor is on that conveyor belt. Your family members who don't know Jesus. People that you see at the airports. Your fellow workers. The promise, number three, that we will experience more of Jesus as we do this. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Context of him talking to the woman at the well, sharing the gospel with her. This is food for my soul. 
I am so jealous for everybody here at Mercy Hill Church to be pursuing Jesus' mission regularly because it's food for your soul. You will be spiritually undernourished if you don't take any steps to advance Jesus' mission. If all your energies are in-house, you will be undernourished because a large part of the food comes from helping people come to know Jesus. And then number four, the reality that God might use your prayers, your love, your words to save someone. What is impossible with men is possible with God. God can do the impossible. It's impossible for anybody to be saved because we don't want to be saved. God does the impossible through our words and changes people's wills and hearts. He does this in Acts 16:14. Look at this verse. This is great. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. She was a, a God-fearer. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's what God can do as you talk to somebody. 2 Corinthians 4, you can read that. Ephesians 2, I'll, I'll end this list with 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So as you sit across from somebody at Starbucks and humbly, authentically, genuinely share with them about Jesus and urge them to trust Jesus, and urge them to repent of their sins, God can grant them repentance right then and there through the gospel, through your words. You have no idea what might happen. No matter how close somebody might appear to you, you have no idea what God could do. God can do the impossible. So here's a story about how God does the impossible. Charles Wesley. I'll close with this. Charles and John Wesley... George Whitfield turned England upside down in the 1800s. I'm sorry, 1700s. So two months after Charles Wesley was saved, two months after, he spent a week witnessing to inmates at the Newgate prison. He did this with a friend named Bray, and in his journal he describes Bray as a poor, ignorant mechanic. So Charles Wesley and Bray... We're in the Newgate prison talking to people about Jesus. Two months after Charles Wesley was saved. And one of the men they spoke to was a, a black man. Um, he wrote in his journal, it's a black slave that had robbed his master who was sick with the fever and condemned to die. One of the, one of the guys he was, they were talking to. So they spent a week talking to them. And then it was the night before these men were all going to be executed. And Charles Wesley and Bray asked the jailer, can we stay overnight to talk to these men through the night about the gospel. And the jailer said, yes. And so all night long, he wrote in his journal, they talked about one who came down from heaven to save lost sinners. And we described the sufferings of the Son of God, his sorrows, his agony, and his death. So all night long, they were in this jail. The next day, all the men who were going to be killed, loaded onto a cart. Charles and Bray asked if they could ride on the cart with them, so they rode on the cart with them. And then they got to the gallows, and Charles and Bray got off the wagon, and all the men had the nooses put upon their neck. And here's what Charles wrote about these men. They were all cheerful, full of comfort, peace, and triumph. 
they were all assuredly persuaded that Christ had died for them. And they all were waiting to, and that he was waiting to receive them into paradise. The black slave saluted me with his looks. As often as his eyes met mine, he smiled with the most composed, delightful countenance I ever saw. We left them going to meet their Lord, ready for the bridegroom. When the cart drove off, not one stirred or struggled for life, but meekly gave up their spirits. I spoke a few suitable words to the crowd and returned, full of peace and confidence in our friend's happiness. That hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour of my life. Get the picture? Spends the night in jail with these condemned to death men telling them about Jesus. And God brought his power upon them and so profoundly saved them that as they were on their way to the gallows, they were completely composed. They were completely at peace because they knew they were going to be going home to Jesus Christ. So there's two things I want you to get from this. One is the power of the gospel to change men who are on death row. Death row. The power of that liquid plumber. To change hearts so that all these men are completely at peace. They're saved. The black man smiling at Wesley with a smile that was the most composed, delightful countenance he'd ever seen. So the power of the gospel. Don't shortchange the power of the gospel. Don't think this person's too hard. No, 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 no. The liquid plumber, God, could change anybody's heart through the power of the gospel. Speak the gospel to everybody humbly. Gently, authentically, lovingly, be real, but speak it. So one truth is the power of the gospel. What's impossible with people is possible with God. Second thing I want you to walk away with is, can you imagine how fearful it would be to spend the night on death row with convicts who have nothing to lose? And Wesley and Bray asked if they could do that. And they did. And look what God did. There's risks in advancing Jesus' mission. I mean, Jesus never pulled any punches. He said to the apostles, some of you they will kill. Some of you they'll arrest. But then he said something strange. Not a hair of your head will perish. Some of you they will kill. Not a head of your hair of your head will perish. In other words, nothing will happen to you that's outside of my loving, good, kind will for you. You just take the risk. You just go for broke. Because heaven awaits you. We have a glorious Lord to live for. We have a glorious gospel to speak. We have the glory of God to anticipate forever. Go for broke. Right? What are we afraid of? It's win or it's win. Either people get saved or we end up with more of Jesus. Or both. Okay? So I want to call you to see Jesus. Trust Jesus. Receive Jesus. Let him so satisfy your heart that you're willing to take the risks he calls you to take to advance his mission. Let's stand together. I want to pray over us. So two things, two action steps. Surrender your life to Jesus and say, Jesus, I will go anywhere you want me to go. I will do anything you want me to do. And the things that make you object to that are potential idols 
that you need to lay down at his feet. That's just the truth, church. I love you. That's why I want to tell you that. If there's something that would keep you from praying that, it's a dangerous thing in your life. So pray it through. Ask him to help you. Ask your home group to help you pray it through. Jesus will help you lay that at his feet. So regularly pray, Jesus, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And then secondly, what is Jesus calling you to do this week to advance his mission? So I pray, Lord, right now, would you bring your power upon us and bring ideas into our minds of things you'd want us to do. Emails we could send to people, maybe somebody who I haven't known for years or I've lost contact with. An invitation to somebody to our house to play Settlers of Catan or to have dinner together or to meet somebody at Starbucks. Go to the Giants game with somebody. Some way to go into our neighborhood. Some way to go to people in our workplace. Lord, show us steps we can take this week to join you in your mission to find lost people here in San Jose that you've called us to find. Oh, put this upon us, I pray. And we say, Jesus, you're worth it all. Your glory is worth it all. We want you to be glorified in saving the lost. We want to speak of your love to people we meet. We want to speak of your death and resurrection to people we meet. Your glory is worth it all. So bring your power upon us. So Lord, work in us right now, I pray. Show us these things you want us to do. Encourage our hearts. Take the fear away. Give us love for lost people. Help us to face up clearly to the realities of eternity and of the cross. We here at Mercy Hill Church want to be a church that advances your mission. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord when we meet you face to face. So thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.